Would you take your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew this evening, the book of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Um, I, I, I thought all, and also as you find Colossians chapter 3, so Matthew chapter 11 and Colossians chapter 3, I thought all week long, or not all week long, all afternoon long, uh, man, there's so many things just to be grateful for this weekend. You know, it's, it's been awesome on just every level from just the opportunity to come here and um, it's great when I see churches making investments in men and I'm so thankful for that and praise the Lord for it. Um, and then the time with Pastor and then Debbie with Miss Katie, what a blessing that is. And then lunch today with Brother Tyler and, I, I, and then the music tonight. Man, at our church, I don't know, every, I don't know, two, three, four months, whenever we feel the need, uh, man, we'll just sing like 11 or 12 songs that I really like. And I'm adding two of them that you sang tonight that I'd never heard before, uh, or I, we'd never sang them corporately before, I'd heard them before, and I thought, man, we're going to add those, and I almost feel like, man, I should just sit down and we should sing nine more songs, and because uh, we only sing, by my count, like four, so 11 plus, or nine plus four is 11. <laughs> it's California math, it's the new math. So it's kind of the way we roll. Really, we see we see our, our song leader, a guy named his name's Bernie. He's awesome. He's been our he's been our music guy for 15 years and just absolutely fantastic at what he does. And he knows that when we get in a roll, it's like Burn, we'll sing this many songs unless I decide we'll sing more. So uh, we just sing more and more, and it's just awesome. And I, I love the four guitars and all of that. Just what a great blessing. Debbie and I are so blessed. Thanks for your hospitality, Pastor. Miss Katie, thank you for that. Uh, thanks for the friendship. It's just some places I go and people don't get me. Really? Yeah. I don't know if you get me or not, but if you don't, you act like it, and that's cool. You fake it. That's great. I don't have any problem with faking it, you know. It's just absolutely fantastic. And I've enjoyed sitting down with, with the girls on the second row that have lied to me the whole service long and uh, about stuff. No, seriously, they've been a huge blessing, a lot of fun. We just hung out and just visited, and it's been, it's been absolutely fantastic and uh, super excited. And again, I want to say to Fellowship Baptist Church, thank you for sharing your pastor. And uh, I really appreciate it. Next year, uh, we we will hold our first ever uh, First Responders Day, Law Enforcement Appreciation Day, and Pastor Prater has graciously accepted our invitation to come and speak for us, and um, we're, we're looking to have somebody from every single agency in San Diego, which is everybody. We'd like to get the CIA guys there, but we don't know if you'll know who they are, so <laughs> tell us, but... Uh, We've, we've done some work with them in the past, but, we, you know, anyway, it, it's just interesting. So they're fun guys. They're fun guys. They're just really weird. Um, but anyway, I praise the Lord for the opportunity to be here tonight. Matthew chapter 11 is a really... Um, it, Matthew chapter 12, at the end of Matthew chapter 12, there's a big transition in the book of Matthew. And we're, we're working to that culmination in Matthew chapter 11. If you were to read verses, our, our text will be found in verse number 15. But in verse 1, Jesus has sent his disciples in chapter 10. Jesus has sent his disciples to teach and preach. And then in chapter 11, Jesus is, ending, uh, is done commanding his disciples. And he departs to teach and to preach in the cities around Galilee, the region north of Jerusalem. The reason Jesus' ministry was in Galilee is they were more open to, the, to new things. They were, a little bit, um, they were a little bit less traditional in Galilee of the Gentiles. They were, they were more open to change in some ways. And, and just to give you a mindset, they, they might be people like um, maybe in, in maybe California or something like that. And they, they, they didn't have the, the stability, we might say, of Jerusalem as a value system. So people like, let's say, in, in Oklahoma are known for, you know, they're not going to change. I've got some friends from Oklahoma, and it doesn't matter what it is. They just don't change. Anybody know any from Oklahoma? I know pastors from Oklahoma. Am I right in that? Like, we're not changing. Well, why are we doing it this way? Because in 1432, when Grandpappy came 
came over on the Mayflower, which didn't come then, but I get it. Uh, this is the way we did it, and we're never changing because it's the way it's always been done. That's kind of the system of Jerusalem. It was very traditional. But Galilee was much more, if you will, open to change. Galilee was very densely populated. There were about two million people in the region. And so Jesus sends his disciples to Galilee, to Jerusalem, to other areas. If you ever have a chance to go to, to Israel, I really encourage you to go there. The hardest thing about going to Israel is the food because they don't like make cheeseburgers for some odd reason. So if you go take your own cheese. But we just got back and, and I was irritated because I couldn't get a cheeseburger. But really good falafel. Um, but, but Jesus is in Galilee, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he sends his disciples out, and John the Baptist, who was the last Old Testament prophet, the one who would make a way for Jesus, John the Baptist is in prison. And this is so encouraging, that's why I'm sharing it with you. John the Baptist, Jesus says, like in verses 10 and 11, 12, that there has never been a greater man ever to be born of a woman than John the Baptist, Meaning he's the greatest man, the godliest man, the most holy man, humanly speaking, other than Christ, obviously. But he is the greatest man to ever walk on the earth and the greatest man who ever would walk on the earth. And he's in prison. And John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus Christ, who saw the Holy Spirit of God descend on, him, on Jesus like a dove, and he heard God the Father say of Jesus Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We all remember that, or most of us remember that. John the Baptist is going through a time of great crisis. He knows he's about to die. And John the Baptist, in time of great doubt and great crisis, sends some disciples to Jesus, and he says, are you he, or should we look for another? I take great comfort in that, because sometimes in my life, my faith is a little bit weak at times. I'm a little bit shaken at times. Can anybody identify with that? Like, not every day is a great day. Sometimes in my life I struggle, and, 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 I, and I really do, and, and I'm always comforted by the fact that the greatest guy to ever live, Jesus' cousin, also struggled. Now, I don't want to stay in the place of struggle, but I am encouraged that I'm not an absolute failure because my faith struggled for a few minutes. And sometimes we get this mindset that if you had a bad day, it's because you have a bad life or you have a, you're a bad person. And when in reality, Jesus tells John the Baptist through the disciples, hey, you go back and you tell John the Baptist this one thing. Tell him what you have seen and what you have heard. What did Jesus do with John the Baptist? Jesus said, you take back to John the Baptist the things you've seen and heard because John the Baptist knows the word. And when he hears what's going on with me and he knows the word, he'll know I am the fulfillment of all prophecy. So we could say it this way. In times of doubt, Jesus encourage John the Baptist to go back to the Word of God. The Word is always the answer. It's always the answer. We may need to talk to somebody. We need encouragement. We need prayer. We need all of that. We do. We need that. I've got that this week. I've been so blessed. But the Word is the answer for the doubt. And then Jesus continues to talk here. So you have to keep this in mind. Jesus has publicly, when John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus when he's talking to a group of people. They ask him the question. Jesus affirms the ministry of John the Baptist, and, and the disciples go back, and, and they tell John the Baptist all about that. So Jesus affirms the ministry of John the Baptist, and there's a group of Pharisees around Christ that had come up most likely from Jerusalem to interrogate him. And Jesus is about to share a parable in our text in verse number 15. And he opens it with this phrase, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Or, it's like this is what he's saying, pay special attention to what I'm about to say. Or, if you can hear me, pay attention to me. Uh, my, my dad, as I've shared, grew up in Borger, Texas, so I grew up with Texas values, and um, there would be times when my dad would be talking to me as a, as a kid. He'd say, now I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, like giving me instruction for maybe a project or something like this. And then he would grab me like by the arm, not, not forcefully, but he'd grab my arm and say, now son, pay attention to what I'm saying. Don't mess this up. And then he would give me maybe a final instruction. How many of you have a father or mother that maybe did something like that? Like, hey, we're all good. I've told you a lot of things, but you better not forget this thing. 
That's what he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Say, let's draw special attention to what I'm about to say. Pay close attention. If you have ears to hear, hear what I'm saying. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse number 16. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? Or what are you guys like? What do, what, what do y'all like here, the people that were standing around him? What would, I, what would I analogize this generation to? This generation, or it is, it is like unto children sitting in the markets, calling unto their fellows, saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil." The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Mm. But wisdom is known of her children. I love this parable that Jesus gives because it reminds me of my childhood. Jesus is talking to a group of people that understood exactly what he was saying and parts of and in that time in that part of the world it was an agrarian society an agricultural society where every farm every family pretty much not everyone but most families would have some type of little farm and and they might have you know a few acres and you go to even parts of the world today and they'll say oh on the farm and you go see their farm and it's like a half acre or it's an acre nothing like the farms here i was blown out of my mind the first time somebody in fiji said you got to come see my farm and i went and saw their garden and they called it a farm. It was, just, it was just a cultural difference I wasn't familiar with. I'd graduated high school in Spokane, Washington, and they have farms up there like you have here. They're just huge and vast, you know, thousands of acres. And I thought, man, you have a, a farm with thousands of acres in Fiji. No, they had a farm that was literally probably a, not even a quarter of an acre, but it was a farm, and it was their means of livelihood. And so these people would be agrarian by culture. And, and so in agrarian cultures, back in that day and in third world countries, even to this day, there was always a market day of the week. There was a day, like we call them, it's, it's the trendy hipster thing. In San Diego, we'll have like four farmer's markets and everybody goes and that's where they buy their hemp seed protein shakes you can wear as pants. And so... How they do all that, I'll never know. You can buy your CBD oil-infused lemongrass gumdrops or something. I mean, it's just quite amazing, the stuff they can come up with. But they would take their wares to the market on a specific day, and they would sell their stuff on that day. They didn't have grocery stores like we had. And so everybody would come to market on that day, and the dads would, would this is how, the, in my, my imagination, and, and I read one guy, and he agreed with me, um, <laughs> If you study the Bible, you know that that's probably not true. Um, but in my mind, it worked like this. The, the whole family would come, the dad, the mom, and the kids. And the moms would come, and the moms would shop, because that's still what women do. All the time. Yesterday, my wife texted me, oh, me and Miss Katie, we're going to go over here to Walmart and get this one thing real quick. Three hours later in five other stores, and I had to refinance my house <laughs> by the time they got home. And Debbie's like, oh, what do you think of these things? They were on sale. Did you need them? Well, yeah, I saved you hundreds of dollars. No, you spent hundreds of dollars. <laughs> well, if I bought them at full price, how about if you didn't buy them at all? But that's not an option, you know? Why? Because moms shop. What do dads do at the mall? Normally, if you're a dad, now if you're single and a guy, you probably shop too. Once you become a dad, something happens, and it's called Amazon Prime. <laughs> so you don't really shop anymore. Matter of fact, you'll buy your clothes online because you could send them back. Or better yet, your wife will send them back because she doesn't mind going when she's at the mall to the post office. So the dads would go and the dads would just hang out. They would just stand around in the marketplace and maybe, uh, you know, drink some hot tea or some coffee. And the dads would stand around and they would talk business and the moms would do the shopping. But here's what would happen every single week in the marketplace. And this is the illustration Jesus is giving us. Every single week in the, in the marketplace, the children would play these games. They would mimic adulthood. 
They would come to the markets and they would play music and they would do one of two things. They would celebrate either a wedding or they would mourn a funeral. That's why Jesus, you read it in the text here, we've piped in you, uh, unto you and you've not danced. That's the wedding celebration. We've mourned the funeral separation and you've not lamented. So the illustration is this, where we come to the marketplace as children, and if you're an adult and you go, you can still see this on playgrounds all over the world today, you can see the, the children all playing, everybody's playing the wedding game, and they're pretending, and a boy is going to get married to a girl, and then there's a preacher that is there, and there's, there's the wedding party that is there, and they're walking down, and they're all pretending, and then they start doing the wedding dances, and this is so huge in the Jewish culture, you know, they're doing the wedding dances, and everybody's breaking glass and mazel toffing it out and they're just having a great time at the wedding party. The kids are playing in the market and man, they're just having the time of their life. It's awesome. It's awesome. But you were watching and it's bringing back memories of your own childhood and you walk up to the marketplace and you see this going on and you're like, dude, that brings back so many amazing memories. What good times. And then you look over and there's that one kid. He's the Debbie Downer of the crowd. The Natalie Ne'er-do-well. And they're just standing over there in the corner while everybody's playing. And they're doing, you guys have a big platform, bigger than ours. Have to walk a lot. <laughs> and they're just standing over there and they're just doing this. And you walk up to them and you're like, Hey, man, what's going on? Why aren't you? I hope you guys do this, too. I call kids out when I see them doing this. Like, hey, why aren't you playing with everybody? Because they're playing the wedding game. And I think it's stupid. I'm going to play the funeral game. And my mom said, I don't have to play the wedding game. It's just stupid. I'm going to play the funeral game. And you just say to them, because you're an adult and mature and irritated. <laughs> Bro, kid you know, it's okay. Just go play the wedding game, and I'm sure they're going to get bored with that in just a few minutes, and they'll play the funeral game. And the, how many of you know this kid? He's in, he's in every family. <laughs> and they, go, they do this. <laughs> they have a visceral, rea visceral reaction to your encouragement that they should have fun. They're like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So you're like, all right, man, well, best of luck to you. And they don't even want to see you. Tears are racing down their face. Everybody else is having a great time, and tears are racing down their face. And so you go, you do your shopping, you know, you buy your rice, your lentils, your Diet Pepsi, and um, you come back through the marketplace, and now these kids are doing the morning game. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the morning game. They're playing the funeral. If you've never seen a Middle Eastern funeral, it is a sight to behold. They literally pay people to be professional mourners, like the real good mourners get money for being really, really sad. And the sadder you are, it shows the fact that you loved your, your family member more. It's part of their culture. I don't have a problem with it. It's just what they do. It's their culture. And so these kids are, are hitting themselves on the chest and smacking themselves on the back. And they're crying really, really loud. There is no Western European idea of reserving your, your emotions. Man, they are all in. They're weeping. They're falling on the ground. They're crying all over the place. And you're watching that. And you're laughing at at it because you know it's just a game. It's not real mourning. They're just playing the game because, well, weddings lead to funerals, I guess, or whatever. And they're just playing. That's part of the game, and that's what's been going on, and everybody understands it. And you walk up, and this is your first thought because this is how you think. And you're like, oh, I bet Debbie Downer over there is having a good time now. And you walk up, and you look, and you're like, well, there's Debbie Downer again. And here's Debbie Downer during the morning game. And she's doing this. And so you walk up. Hey, you told me 20 minutes ago you wanted to play the morning game. And now they're playing the morning game. Why aren't you playing the morning game? Because morning is stupid. Whoa. 20 minutes ago you said the wedding was stupid. How's the morning stupid now? How's this bad? Because I don't want to play the morning game. I'm going to play the wedding game now. 
But 20 minutes ago, you didn't want to play the wedding game. You want to do the morning game. Well, that was then, and this is now. Leave me alone. Really? You don't want to play the morning game? No, I don't want to play the morning game. I'm done with morning. I want to be happy now. Here's the problem. They just chose not to be satisfied. They just chose not to be satisfied. Debbie Downer could find a problem, and this is what Jesus is saying. We've piped and you've not danced. We've mourned and you've not lamented. For John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a devil. You literally said John the Baptist is demonically possessed. If not possessed by the devil, this is what you're saying about John the Baptist. Because he won't talk to people. He's very rigid. He's firmly, firmly separated from the entire world. And you're like, oh, that dude is just so far gone. I want nothing to do with him. The son of man, he comes and he's a friend to sinners. And he eats with publicans. And you call him a glutton and a drunkard. You call him a, this is glutton, a gross overeater and an alcoholic. That's the idea of a drunkard there. A person that always over uh, drinks. A person that is, that is totally given to alcohol. And Jesus says, here's the reality. You're just choosing Pharisees not to be happy. It doesn't matter what we do. We can dance, and you're not going to be happy. We can mourn, and you're not going to be happy. Because no matter what we do, you're just not going to be happy. This is theological implications when it comes to Jesus and John the Baptist. Problem finders find problems with everything. They just find problems with everything. (laughs) Over the years, we've had people in our church that are by nature, their sinful nature that is, problem finders. So it doesn't matter what we do as a church family, they find problems with it. We have a daycare and we employ 20-something people and we have 84 kids. I mean, it's, it's just great what God has done there. We've seen many people come to Christ. It's just fantastic what God has done there. But there are some parents that no matter what we do, They find a problem with everything. And you know what problem finders aren't? They aren't happy. Why? Because there's always a problem. With what? Everything. There's never a time when there's not something wrong with whatever is in front of them. In a study by the Harvard Medical School Department of Psychiatry, Researchers paid 27 people, it's, this, is, this is the job of a lifetime, to play Tetris. How many of you know what Tetris is? How many of you don't know what Tetris is? All right, I was at a church one time and I asked that and 50% of the crowd had no idea what Tetris is and I encouraged the pastor to buy video games. <laughs> Tetris is a game of organization where boxes of different shapes fall and you have to put them in the right spaces and if you make one full line of boxes at the bottom that line will erase and then more boxes fall and different shapes and it gets faster and faster and faster and you lose the game when the boxes is the 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 box that you're playing in is completely full to the top well harvard psychiatry department of psychiatry paid 27 people to play tetris for multiple hours a day for three days in a row It's a nice job, except for the side effect. For days after the study was done, participants literally could not stop dreaming about shapes falling from the sky. Others couldn't stop seeing these shapes everywhere they went, even in their waking hours. Quite simply, they couldn't stop seeing the world as made up of a sequence of Tetris blocks. In an article of one lady who was a journalist who replayed the study because she didn't believe it, she writes this after doing the exact same study on herself. Walking through the aisles of the local grocery store trying to decide between Honey Nut or Frosted Cheerios, I noticed how perfectly one set of cereal boxes would fit in with the gap on the row below it. 
She said, running doggedly around the track at the YMCA, bored out of my mind, which jogging always makes you bored. Please lift weights. <sighs> jogging is weird. <sighs> anyway, running doggedly around the track, bored out of my mind, I find myself focusing on the brick wall and calculating the direction I'd have to rotate those slightly darker bricks to make them fit in an uneven row of dark bricks a few feet lower down the wall. Going out to get some fresh air, after many hours of work, I rubbed my watery eyes, she worked in Philadelphia, and my watery eyes, and I looked up at the Philadelphia skyline, and I wondered, if I flipped the Victory Building on its side, would it fit into the gap between Liberty One and Liberty Two? Gamers soon started calling this, before there was a, a, a game show of this, started calling this the Tetris Effect. Long before they came out with this new video game, they understood that the more you played a game, the more that it affected the way you view the world. And psychologists began to call this cognitive after-imaging. We're going somewhere, so don't lose the science. Cognitive after-imaging. You say, what's cognitive after-imaging? You ever take a picture, somebody take a picture of you with the flash on and your eyes open? They take a picture, you close your eyes, and you see those red and green dots or red and blue dots in your eyes. That's cognitive after image. That's what's left over after they take the picture. When the kids played Tetris for an extended period of time, they became stuck with something clouding their vision. In this case, it was involuntarily seeing Tetris shapes everywhere they went. It wasn't a vision problem. It was simply playing a video game. Video games actually change the wiring of our brain. It doesn't matter the video game. Whatever video game you play, it literally changes the wiring of your brain. We are told that if you play a violent video game, it will permanently alter it if you, your brain if you play a violent video game for five seconds. Your mind will be, your brain will be permanently altered after playing that for just five seconds. Dr. Sean Aker, a Harvard research fellow as well as a PhD in the area of positive psychology, says this, to be sure this would be great news, the Tetris effect, if students were training for a Tetris tournament. But it proved extremely maladaptive when they're doing non-Tetris activities. And let's face it, few jobs reward obsessive Tetris playing. Our brains are very easily stuck in patterns of viewing the world. Some are more beneficial than others. That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs 23, verse number 7, as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our mind begins to go a direction, and we begin to see things, listen to me clearly, and sometimes, not to be hard, but sometimes some of you in the crowd look at the world through one giant problem prism. Everything in the world is a negative. Even God is a negative. You find problems in every church service. You find problems in every fellowship. You find problems in your, at your job. And you find problems with your family all the time. Why? You're stuck in it. You've allowed yourself to think a certain way, and so now all you can do is find problems with everything because you're stuck scientifically. And we know this is a spiritual component. It's much more important, but God created the body, and so psychologists are calling it cognitive after imaging. You just keep telling yourself there's problems, and you know what you keep finding? Problems. Why? As my mama used to say, you find what you're looking for. Well, we piped. Why didn't you dance? Dancing's stupid. We've mourned. Why haven't you lamented? I'm not going to mourn. That's embarrassing. This is what Jesus is saying. We could train our brains to view things either positively or negatively. We can train our brains. Several years ago, Debbie and I, see we have the choice how we train our brains, Debbie and I were with some friends. We were in Pomona, California, that area, a little town called San Dimas, where we lived right after we got married. And uh, we were in San Dimas, and some friends said, hey, let's go get coffee. And our friends were from Washington State. It was in May. And they hadn't seen the sun. I, I I'm not exaggerating on this one. They had not seen the sun since about November or early December. So like six months, they hadn't seen the sun. Anybody want to move to Seattle? 
and uh, they live just north of Seattle, very dear friends of ours, so we go to get coffee. And I, I just got to be really honest with you, I'm like a weather diva. I live in San Diego, and I check the weather today in San Diego. Today is a good day. It's, it's a nice day. It's why we pay what we pay for houses. 73 degrees, 52% humidity, and a light breeze. You know what I call that? Average. You know what you guys call that? Amazing. <laughs> it's just average. That's just what we do. Well, we had been having some hot weather. Kid you not, it had been scorching hot. It was like 82, 83 degrees. <laughs> like 63% humidity. It had just been really warm for us. I mean, it really had been. That's warm for us. The ocean breeze did not come in until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon as the marine layer came in to cool everything off so we could open all our windows. We don't have air conditioning, but you could feel the breeze coming through the windows. It was literally till like 4 o'clock. We were suffering. It was difficult. I am a weather diva. Everybody knows it. The ladies at our church revolt every single Sunday with bad attitudes because they're stuck in cognitive after imaging. And we're at this coffee shop with our friends, and it's hot. And it was hot. It was, it, I'm not exaggerating. We ordered coffee in a place, hot coffee in a place, where it was like 94 degrees, and it was really dry that week. It was like 0% humidity. We were having Santa Ana winds blowing off the desert. And so it was just super uncomfortable to be in. If you've ever been like to Phoenix, it felt like a Phoenix type of weather. And, and I'd been whining about it all day. And so we were at the coffee shop and we're ordering the coffee and I got mine first. I said, hey, I'll go get seats for us. And this was my first thought. Okay, where's the air conditioning vent? We're going to sit right underneath it. So I walked over, I found the air conditioning vent. I'm like, okay, right there, here's the chair. Went and got four chairs. I'm like, hey guys, I got seats right here. And my friend's wife almost began to cry. She said, Chris, I said, what? She said, can't we sit outside? I said, don't you know it's an inferno outside? She said, Chris, we haven't seen the sun since November. And I said, well, what's one more day? <laughs> she said, please, can we just go outside? I said, Rebecca, sure, we'll go outside. And we went outside, and this was her and her husband as they sat in the chairs. <laughs> so funny. They sat in the chairs and they just put their heads back and put their arms out. It was like they were worshiping the sun worshiper Baptist people. And they were just like this for about 15 minutes. I'm like, do you guys need us to leave? Because we'll go if you're good. And they're like, oh, we miss it so much. You know what? We were experiencing the exact same thing, but they had a positive attitude towards what I had a negative attitude towards. Who do you think had a better day? Yeah, they loved it. I went home complaining to Debbie about I was drinking hot coffee in 90 degree weather. Everybody knows somebody who's stuck in a Tetris effect. The friend who walks into the room and finds something to complain about. The boss who continually focuses on what an employee does wrong instead of what they do right. Coworkers who continually predict doom and gloom before every meeting, no matter the outcome. The family members who, whose feelings are constantly hurt. You know that person, they, they just no matter what you say, their feelings are going to be hurt. I like to think that many of those folks don't want to be discouraging. They are quite simply really good folks. They're just stuck in a negative frame of mind. The scripture is rather clear in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, watch into prayer. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourself. For charity shall cover a multitude of sins. God has called us to, with love, overlook the problems of life. Grace in our life is the greatest testament to God working in us. And God has called us to move from the Tetris effect to the gospel effect of God who sees all the problems in the world and knows them all. And we who were his enemies, he still sent his son down to die for us in an imperfect world where people have completely rejected him. It's so easy to see problems with everything. I read this week about a, not this week, a couple weeks ago about a group of accountants at a global tax firm, major tax firm, who spend 8 to 14 hours a day finding problems with their clients' tax documents so the IRS doesn't find them. 
So our whole job is just to find problems. Like the Tetris players saw, pro- saw blocks everywhere, these folks began to see problems in everything they did and every place they went. A group of researchers followed these folks, and they found that they, they would go home and they would focus, like if, if they had children in school during the report cards, if the kid got six A's and one of them was in a subject he really struggled with, he got six A's and one C, they wouldn't even mention the six A's. All they would talk about is the single C that he got. They took these same researchers to a five-star restaurant, and they had some of the best beef in the world flown in and cooked perfectly to these folks' liking, and they, they, they cooked them the steak, but they served them with the steak. I mean, we're talking steak that costs like $125 just for the steak, just for the entree, and, and they cooked the steak perfectly, but they gave them cool, not cold, not hot, but just cool mashed potatoes, and they had them fill out a survey afterwards. Not one time was the perfect steak ever mentioned. The only thing that was ever mentioned was the cool potatoes. They were just, they could just only find the problems. That's all that they could ever see. That's all they could ever focus on. One auditor confided, uh, confided in a researcher that he'd been really depressed lately and his marriage had really been struggling. So in an effort to make things better, he stayed home from work one day and he made an Excel spreadsheet for his wife where he had taken the time to list all of her mistakes in the last six weeks. And according to the researcher, it was quite long. And she came home that night and he gave it to her. They were divorced in less than two years. It's not just true of of accountants. Attorneys are 3.6 times, not percent, times, 300 times or or percent more likely to suffer from major depressive disorder than the rest of the population. Why? Because they're trained to look for flaws in, in arguments. They're trained to be critical as opposed to accepting. Attorneys often admit the habit of deposing their children and spouses. We've had a lot of attorneys in our church over the years. They depose their pastor too. Many find themselves, attorneys do, spending billable hours with their family. Or in other words, when a husband who's an attorney spends time with his wife, he's like, okay, I've spent four hours with my wife. I charge $300 an hour. Okay, I've just given my wife $1,200. And he views his wife as a client. If if you're here an attorney, I don't have a problem with you, except I don't like attorneys, except the ones that are nice. Um, but please don't bill your wife for spending time with her. But that's how they viewed it. We're working to a bigger point. Police officers often see the world through a negative prism because they're trained to be suspicious of everyone. You ever meet a cop and not remember all the facts? You just feel awkward riding in a cop car with your pastor last night. I don't remember what my favorite soda is anymore. I don't even like soda, but please don't arrest me. I'll drink anything. Dads in management come home, and everything in the home will be great. If the mom would just follow his restructuring plan, the whole family would run more efficiently. That's, that's my issue. I come home, I'm like, hey, I got a plan to make your house cleaning way easier. Her, she has a plan, too. I should do it. Nurses see infections at every turn, and my profession is not immune. Pastors see everything as a sin issue, where spiritual intervention is necessary. Sometimes people just have bad days. I mean, literally, I want them to go to a revival meeting or something all the time. It's like, no, I just didn't sleep well. No, sleep is not the issue. You're a sinner, which is true, but not grace-filled. These qualities can make somebody really great at their profession, but really bad at being human. Really bad. And no one is immune to this. When our negative job types that we have to have aren't compartmentalized, people won't be happy. But pessimistic, negative, fault-finding, that becomes the mindset of the person, and they become more susceptible to depression, to stress, to poor physical health, and really to substance abuse. So if you're here tonight and you're looking for your, fa- your spouse to offend you, listen to what I'm about to say, you'll find it. If you came to church tonight going, I wonder what dumb thing's going to happen, you'll find it. 
We have major war fighters in our church, guys that have been behind the lines, if you know what I mean. I mean, they've thrown lead back and forth with every group of insurgents since 1990. And really, all the way back to the Korean War, we have a guy who was a spy in North Korea. And, and sometimes they come in and they're just so suspicious of all authority. They view all authority as bad. If, if, if that's you, you know what, you're going to find it. Like, oh, I speak, I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is my new phrase lately, it's my hobby horse. I speak truth to power. Really? Really? You know what you're probably doing? You're just stuck in a negative Tetris effect where all you're trying to do Maybe you have good intentions, but your mind has shifted to where all that you see are problems in every area of life. And the theology of what you're saying is true. There's problems in every area of life. I tell our church oftentimes, if, if you want to know the sin issues of your pastor, you don't have to look behind closed doors. Ask the staff, they'll tell you. He struggles with anger sometimes. I'm a really driven person, and I struggle with anger, and I sometimes struggle with working too long, too many hours. I struggle with sexual temptation because I'm a man, and I struggle with that. So if you want to look around and find that, okay, there you go. Those are my big issues. If you want to come to a church service and find it, you'll find it. No, Brother Tyler held out that song too long, or... I don't even know if this is a, a true statement about you, but he was a little bit too sharp on that one note and too flat on that other note. I think we ought to hire Chris Chadwick to lead the music now. <laughs> Those words have never been said in human history, so we can pretend, we can dream, keeping hope alive. If you're looking at a coworker with a negative spirit and you're looking at them to have a negative spirit towards you, they'll have that. They'll have it. Why? Because here's the big idea. You'll almost always find what you're looking for. You'll almost always find what you're looking for. I, I, I really struggle with phrases like this in my life. Matter of fact, I cringe when I hear people say them. Well, nowadays, and then you can just fill in the blank. You're allowed to say anything about anyone if you preface the statement with, well, nowadays. Back when I was a kid, let me tell you how it was. And then you could say anything. It could be pejorative or positive. It doesn't really matter. Well, nowadays, I'll tell you, our, our country's not like it was. Well, of course it's not. I, I, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Understand, I'm not trying to be sarcastic at all. It's just not. I've heard people say, so many people have immigrated to our country. It's just not the way it was. Well, my grandfather immigrated to this country. I'm kind of happy he did. i got some amazing friends from all over the world that have immigrated to this country. I can look at it negatively if I want to, but I can look at it as a mission field if I'll allow myself to think that way. I've talked a little bit at the men's retreat about my dear friend Dave Borden and his wife Debbie. They have three boys in Cambodia. Dave is turning a country through the power of God upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of tears, a lot of difficult days, but he's just doing an awesome job. I think the best missionary in the world right now. Just absolutely amazing what God's doing there. But Dave didn't know anything about Cambodians until 19, I think it was 82, in the middle of the Khmer Rouge's killing fields and that totalitarian event that many of you are old enough to remember seeing the news. I've been to the killing fields. I've seen bones in the dirt of people that have been killed there. I've seen clothes after a rainstorm wash up out of the dirt where people have been killed there. They, they think two million of the eight million Cambodians, the Khmer Rouge killed and Popot killed. And, and, and so the United States government took a whole bunch of refugees and they moved them to different parts of the country. And one of the places that they moved them was a little town in Iowa, not far where far from where Dave Board's dad pastored a, a uh, General Association of Regular Baptist Church, and Dave's dad got a heart for those people, and so he came home to his son who was 15 years old. He said, hey, Dave, I want to start a bus route to the Cambodian refugees that are over here in this part of town, and I want you to lead it. And Dave said, Dad, I don't know anything about Cambodia. He said, well, now's the time to learn. 
And Dave took that on as a challenge, and he went into that environment, and he learned the people, and he learned the culture, and he learned the language, never having one thought that he would ever go to Cambodia. He just knew these people needed Jesus Christ, and he didn't go in with a negative attitude. He went in with a positive attitude that Jesus Christ could change the lives of some Cambodian boys and girls, just like he changed the life of this German boy, and God can do something amazing in him, and he had that attitude, and he went in, and he learned the language, and better than the language, he learned the culture, and he understood how to address a grandfather and a grandmother and an uncle and an aunt and a teacher and he became the pastor of that Cambodian little community at 16 years old and 16 and 17 and 18 and then as an adult he moved to Los Angeles, California where there, uh, Long Beach, California where there are more Cambodians in Long Beach than any place in the world outside of Cambodia and he began to reach Cambodian people and he reached a young missionary named Sarah or a young boy named Sarah Vong and a young boy named, named Buna Haas and a young Cambodian Mexican mix young man uh, named Adrian Torres and he led them to Christ and he discipled them and he worked with them and then in the mid 90s God called Dave and his family to move to Cambodia so they moved to Cambodia and a few years later their pastor called and said listen you don't need to be in Cambodia by yourself you need to come back here and you need to work with some of our guys and today when you when your pastor goes or Pastor Tyler goes with me to Cambodia they're going to meet six guys that are missionaries in Cambodia that were all saved in Long Beach that are now part of a team in Phnom Penh, Cambodia and, and villages all over that country who are impacting that part of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ because some young guy didn't take it as a negative that people were moving in but as God bringing a mission field to him and he learned the culture and he looked, learned the language and now he is preaching the gospel all over an entire nation that is literally sending missionaries all over Southeast Asia into countries you and I could never dream of getting into. Why? He had the opportunity to be pessimistic or he had the opportunity to be positive and he chose being positive over being negative. Why? Because you almost always find what you're looking for. Yep. That's why Colossians chapter 3. I asked you to find that earlier. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 8, says, And now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. We looked at the parallel passage of this yesterday at the Men's uh, Man Up Conference. And now put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing ye have put off the old man, with his deeds and put on the new man that is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him where there is neither Jew nor Greek talking about races circumcision nor uncircumcision I'm talking about your religious past whether you're Jew or Gentile barbarian Scythian bond or free but Christ is all and in all Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let, the word let means to allow, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful." And Paul's writing to the conclusion, at the conclusion of the church of Colossae or towards the end of the book and he says this, put off intentionally. The idea of that is to take your coat off or to take it off, to intentionally take it off. And Paul says, no, you need to take off, to lay aside, to lay down anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Listen to what I'm about to say. Angry people cannot be happy people. And you'll almost always find what you're looking for. Hey, ladies, if you find a reason to be ticked off, if you want a reason to be ticked off at your husband, it won't take long. <laughs> Man, if you want to find out a reason why your wife doesn't meet your expectations, it won't take long. 
I've never sat in a counseling office with somebody who was having marriage problems and the problem not have started with unmet expectations. I, I, I should have had a better spouse. She should have been, you could fill in the blank. We've had people get really upset. God should have given me, fill in the blank. I told this story to the men, but not all of you were there, so I'll tell it again and I'll be done. My best friend in life also works for me, which makes it never awkward. His name is Bernie Lund, and Bernie and I have been super close for 15 years. I discipled him. He's our staff member, just awesome dude. We talked today, and he preached for us this morning. And uh, Bernie didn't get married until later in life. He was in his early 30s when... It's not late, but you get the idea. He'd wanted to be married at 22, but he was too weird, and no girl would even date him. He really was. We had to work on him a long, long time. And, and he finally married this girl that was out of our church, lovely lady. Her name's Leslie, and Bern had always, his dream woman, the woman that he always thought he would marry, because Bern's a 5'8", average-sized guy, and, but he always wanted to marry a, he speaks fluent Spanish, and, and uh, he always wanted to marry a, a Spanish-speaking girl about 5'4", five, 5'5". Five, five. I mean, he had a list. He literally had an Excel spreadsheet. And at the top of that list was, she needs to be saved. She needs to love God. She needs to be a Baptist, because I told him he had to put all those in there. Um, he didn't see the importance of it, but I told him he wasn't allowed not to have them. And, uh, and then number four was this. He said this. Uh, his, or, or Hispanic, he didn't care per se what country, Spanish speaker and beautiful. And that, those were the next criteria. So he was limiting everybody who's not that. And he ended up marrying a, a godly, lovely Baptist lady who is a 5'9 woman from Lithuania. <laughs> As I said to the men, she's translucent. Like literally, she is so white, they don't do MRIs on her. They just look at her skin. And you can see her veins, her heart, everything about her. Everything about her. I mean, she's just right there. She's godly. I'm, I'm kidding. She's a beautiful lady. Dear friend. She's like a sister to me and Debbie. Love her to death. She's been in our church 14 years. 14 years. Burns has been 15 years. They've been married now almost 10 years. Waited to have kids. They had their first daughter, Abigail. It's a joy to my life. They had their uh, second daughter, Jane Ray. And uh, man, she's just amazing. And then they got pregnant with their third daughter. And her name's Evia. And about week number 20, Burns comes to me and Debbie, making the story a little shorter, and he says, hey, Pastor and Debbie, I just need you to know. Leslie wasn't there. She just couldn't deal with it. He said, Pastor, I just need you to know that um, Leslie uh, has had some complications. We're not sure what's going on. The doctors think the baby might have a condition. We, we're, we're really scared about it. Would you pray with us? So we prayed with them and came back, and it was confirmed after, I don't know, four or five, six tests that Evia, who was in the womb and, and healthy in the womb, if you will, but Evia had trisomy 13, which is a triplification of the 13th chromosome. She had an extra thing there. And, and that causes some major problems um, with kids. And no one's expected to survive this for really any length of time without a huge amount of surgeries. And that would only be for somebody who has a mild case of it. And I guess there's degrees of the cases. I never, I'd never heard of this till this happened. And so Bern and Les talked to us and they had to make some major decisions in their life. And they, you know, the first option that the doctors gave them was to abort the baby. And absolutely not. God is the giver of life and God is the taker of life. And that is not for any man to ever step across that line. No one has the right to take the life that God has given. So that was not even an option for them. They wouldn't even consider it, and rightly so, by the way. And I praise the Lord for that. But then they had to make some other decisions. 
they could have the baby and immediately take the baby to surgery and put the baby in surgery, and the baby might live for a couple of months, a couple of years maybe, but it would have to have constant surgeries. And they were doing MRIs, or, or, or I'm sorry, they were doing ultrasounds and MRIs on Leslie all the time, and they found out that Evia's bowels were completely tied off. They, they, she, would, she would never have a bowel movement in her life, and she had a major cleft palate, and, and she had other major problems with her heart and her limbs and all of that. And more um, unless they're just weeping like any of us would be. And Bern would come to me and Brother Tyler, there, there was times he'd just sit in my office and you don't know Bernie well, but he's the steadiest guy on the planet. I mean, he just never gets shaken and he would just sit in my office and he would just weep and and pastor why is this happening all we ever wanted to do was raise kids for god why i burn up i don't know on the inside i was asking the same question god why are you doing this man all these folks want to do they didn't ask for this baby God, you gave them this baby. They weren't trying to have kids. They were trying not to have kids, but that Chinese moon chart didn't work very well. I recommend not using it. And I said, Bern, I don't know. And Leslie, who was more reserved than Bernie, we would cry, and she and Debbie would hug, and we'd try to bring as much human comfort as we knew how to give. And then she started getting close. And there's a part of you, if you've never been through this, and I'm sure many of you have, but there's a part of you when something like this happens that you're like, maybe they got it all wrong. And maybe she'll be born and everything will be fine. And they just, these doctors are dumb and they're practicing medicine. They don't know. Who do they think they are anyway? Losers, you know. And, and there's a part of you that's just like, God is going to win this out. We were never praying for healing. We never prayed for healing. Bernie and Leslie said, Pastor, please don't pray for healing. Just pray that we would have grace and boldness to share the gospel through the whole thing. I said, all right. So that's what we did. The day came, the biggest day our church has ever had. Biggest Sunday we ever had. Bernie was in charge of about four different things. Leslie was not good, supposed to have the baby for two more weeks. She, there was no problems. And on Saturday night, or really Sunday morning, 2.30 in the morning, he calls me. Pastor, Leslie's having the baby, or, or going to have the baby. We're going to the hospital. Uh, all right, Bern, well... <laughs> Best of luck. I mean, I don't know really what you say at that point, but we'll take care of everything. We'll get it all covered. Don't stress about anything. We've got it all, man. It's good to go. I called them back a few minutes later just to cover one, one little logistical thing. And when I called them back, he's like, Pastor, I can't talk. Leslie's having the baby on the bathroom floor right now. He hangs up the phone. Debbie was on her way out to the house. I'm like, hey, you better get there. They live 20 minutes east of us. I'm like, you better get there right now. It's okay to speed. Debbie's the type of person, she'll speed when she's not supposed to and not speed when she is. She'll be driving 60 on the freeway. Put, 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 put. You put her in the middle of the day when there's a sale on at Cole. She's 95 miles an hour in a school zone, you know? And I'm like, honey, you just got to get there. So she's flying there trying to get there. Leslie's literally, literally getting dressed to go to the hospital and as she's getting dressed the baby comes out they had a do not resuscitate on the baby burn grabs the baby off the floor the baby like literally came out grabs the baby off the floor calls the 911 operator bernie's dad was an OBGYN and delivered thousands of babies he didn't learn one thing from his dad He's like, what do I do? And they're like, we will do this. And he's like, I don't know what that even is. And they're like, it's this squiggly, slimy thing. And he's like, the whole thing is slimy, you know. About that time, the paramedics come in, and they get the baby, and they rush Leslie off to the hospital. Things didn't go so well at the hospital. They kept getting moved around in rooms, and finally they get in a room. They get settled. I get there about 6.30 in the morning after they're settled in, and we prayed, and I held little Evie a grace. I just wept. This baby had a horrible cleft palate. This baby's stomach was all tied up in knots. 
This baby would never taste food because they were afraid if they gave her any kind of nourishment, she would have much tremendous pain in her bowels and they couldn't do that. They were just trying to soothe her mouth with maybe some ice chips or something like that. 29 and a half hours after she was born, she went home to be with Jesus. It was a Monday morning at 9.30. Debbie and I got to the hospital because they asked for some time alone. They're private people. And they asked for some time alone. And we got there about 4.30 in the afternoon and we brought some food and we just sat there and we didn't know what to do. They don't teach you this in Bible college. And we didn't know that the baby would still be in the room. We thought they would have long since come and got the baby. And Evia was with the Lord, obviously, but her little body was still in the room. And I walked in, and Pastor, I'll be honest with you, I had to put on, I, I, my dad didn't let me play cards. I don't have a poker face at all. I just walked in, and I, I walked over. The baby was like right here, and I saw her, and I just kind of walked over and gave Bernie a big hug trying to collect my thoughts and gave Leslie a hug trying to collect my thoughts. And I went over by the window overlooking San Diego and I just began to pray, God, you've got to give me a huge amount of grace because I have no idea what to say, what to do, or even really how to feel. I knew nothing in the moment. And so God gave grace and I went over and I held the baby and I kissed her. I held Bern and I kissed him hugged Leslie. They began to tell stories and talk and just share experiences that they've had through this. They came while Debbie, Debbie later came in. She went and parked the car because you should always drop the pastor off at the front door. I don't know why we did it that way. Really, we did it that way because Bern asked for me to get there as quick as I possibly could. They said, don't come, don't come. And then, Pastor, can you get in the room right now? And so Debbie was super gracious and dropped, uh, parked the car as I ran into the room. I literally ran into the room because they were just having a difficult time in the moment. And, and Debbie comes in, and she kind of goes through. I didn't have time to tell her that the body would still be there. She didn't know. Debbie didn't know. And so she kind of went through the same emotional roller coaster, if you will, for lack of a better term, that I did, and Deb comes in and hugs Leslie, and they just, Leslie's on the hospital bed, and, and, and she's, she's not in her gown, she's just in street clothes, and they just, they just, you, you ever wept so much that your whole body weeps? You know that whole shaking thing? That's where they're at. They're, the, the two of them are just shaking, and, and Bernie and I are just kind of looking at each other, and, and he's crying, and I'm crying, way worse than I am now, and, and I'm holding the baby, and about 20 minutes later, they come, and they say, okay, we're going to take the baby. All right. Debbie and I said to Bernie and Leslie, you know what, we'll go out of the room so you guys can say your final goodbyes. They said, no, would you please stay? I really didn't want to stay. I really, I really wanted out because I didn't know what to do. And so I stayed there and I just prayed. I wanted to sing, but words couldn't come out of my mouth. And, and so I'm sitting there and they're saying goodbye. And I walked over and said, can I give her a kiss goodbye? I know I didn't have to ask, but I felt like it was appropriate. Pastor, please do. And we prayed. We prayed for Bernie and Leslie in that very moment. God, give them boldness to declare your word and may people come to Christ because of the death of Evia Grace and give them a huge amount of grace and strength. We're going to this point here. They get the baby. They take her out. The nurses were amazing. They were absolutely fantastic. I've never seen nurses deal with this so well in my life, ever, ever. I've never seen them deal with death like this. They were just over-the-top amazing. And they left the room, and we're sitting down with food that they'd asked us to bring, and we're sitting there, and I just, I said to them, Debbie's there, I'm there, Burns there, Les is there. I said, how are you guys doing after all of this? And Bernie looked at me weeping. He goes, not good. I'm not good. Unless he goes, Pastor, I'm not good. Normal response. I would have really hated it if they said, oh, we're doing good. I mean, they were just super honest. And I said, give me an emotional inventory. Tell me what you're feeling. So they went through the process of their feelings. Hurt, 
rejection. Kazibia was supposed to die a painless death, and she died a very, very painful death in the arms of her mother. Very painful death. Went through the death cycle, if you know what that is, five separate times, and finally died on the fifth, four times died on the fifth. And they said, we're hurt. Pastor, we're angry. We are so, Burns said, I'm so angry with God right now. All I ever asked God is that my baby wouldn't suffer, and she did. I knew, because of what the scripture said, that he had to make a choice. And so this is what I said. Bro, what are you gonna do with that? This were his words and his wife's words. Pastor, we're just gonna put that aside. And we've made the choice, and they said, we talked about it today, that regardless of what happens, God is good. God is good. And he's faithful. And he's loving. And we're just going to share his story. And we're going to talk about Evia. And we're not going to dwell on what we think shouldn't have happened. We're going to praise God for bringing Evia grace into our lives. You know what they did? They found what they were looking for because they'd been looking for grace and they experienced grace. Had they been looking for a reason to get upset with God, they wouldn't be in ministry today. Statistically, they probably wouldn't be together today. But today, they are better servants of God than I've ever seen them be in 15 years. Do they miss Evia Grace? Every day. We won't let her die at our church. It's something that we talk about. Why? Because the talking is therapeutic. The talking is helpful. The talking reminds us of the grace of God in the darkest moment, how that when we were in the valley of despair, and burning less, much more, 10,000 times more than anybody else, how that God provided his grace in times of tremendous crisis. You know what happens? You find what you're looking for. Somebody tonight is maybe a little bit bitter even at God. And every time you turn around, you find another reason to get upset at God. You find another opportunity to be mad. Maybe somebody tonight is bitter with their spouse and Every time you turn around, you find another reason, and there's another nail in the coffin of our marriage, and maybe we won't get divorced, but we're certainly not going to live happily ever after. We're just going to live, because he's a loser or she's a loser. Maybe all you could see at church is the negative. I mean, you got great music and great people, but I'm not foolish enough or not novice enough to think that there's not some folks here that might just have a little bit of something going on in their heart that's going, I don't know if I'm satisfied with that. I, don't, I, I, I think I see something going on there behind the scenes. I, I think I see a conspiracy happening. Can I tell you? Put that off. Put the bitterness off. Make the choice to understand that God didn't even have to give Bernie and Leslie Evie a grace. She, God didn't have to allow her to hold that beautiful little cleft palate body in her hand and weep and wash her forehead with the tears of a mother. God didn't have to do that, but in his goodness he did. It didn't turn out like I wanted. It didn't turn out like we prayed, but it turned out like God wanted, and God is still good. And if you'll look to find the goodness of God, can I tell you, you'll find it because it's everywhere to be seen, and you'll always find what you're looking for. What are you looking for? You looking for an opportunity to get ticked off? You'll find it. Are you looking for an opportunity for grace? You have it. Father, bless our time in the Word tonight. I don't know how to...